0: So what is it that you and I were made for? Why were we created? To know God. What should be the aim in our lives? What should be the aim of our life? To know God. To know God is to live. After all, what is eternal life? What is the eternal life that Christ has given us? The knowledge of God. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. John 17 verse 3. What brings more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else this life can offer? The knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God leads us to adoration and worship. Scripture teaches us that God is both incomprehensible and he's also knowable. One author said, To say that God is incomprehensible is to gladly acknowledge that the glorious triune God of Scripture is in a category all by himself, and that as such he is unfathomable in his nature, his knowledge, and his works. We can know the incomprehensible God truly, but never fully. Never exhaustively. End quote. Even though God is infinite, he transcends our finite minds, he is infinite and incomprehensible, we can know him because he has chosen to reveal himself to us, firstly through general revelation, which we observe in his created world, but most importantly through special revelation, the Word of God and the Word. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 says, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in His Son. His Son is the Word. To quote again, apart from the triune God and His initiative to speak to us, not only would there be no universe because it was created by His Word, But the author continues, but we would also have no ground for the knowledge of God. To truly know Him, we need God to tell us who He is, what His eternal plan is all about, and how we fit into that plan for God's glory, end quote. Yes, indeed, God is high and exalted above the earth, but He is also in fellowship with those who know Him. The book of Genesis is primarily a book about God. God is the main character of the book of Genesis, just as He is the main character in the book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 is the majestic opening chapter of both the Hebrew and Christian Bible. And it introduces two subjects, God and man. God the Creator and man His creature. And it sets the scene for the story of redemption and relationship. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And it serves as an introduction to God who has no beginning and who has no end. The creation account is theocentric. It is centered on God, not creature-centered. Its purpose is to glorify the Creator by magnifying him through the majesty of his created order. When Moses penned the book of Genesis in the 15th century BC, the nation of Israel was surrounded by wicked nations, nations who worshipped all sorts of different aspects of God's creation. They were pantheistic. They were surrounded by nations who were polytheistic, worshipping multiple false gods, gods that they had made up in their own imaginations. And thus, Moses writes Genesis as somewhat of a polemic, a defense for the one and only true God. The creation account demonstrates that Israel's God is the one and only true God, the Creator Lord, who created everything and has no, no rival god is the autonomous master who has by his uncontested word commanded all things into existence and ordered their design and purpose genesis is a book of origins and the reason why moses wrote genesis was to explain the origin of early history the history of the universe the history of the human race sin depravity tribes and languages the nation of Israel to whom Moses wrote, and then God's promise of both blessing, the blessing of redemption, as well as curses, judgment. The redemption which would be accomplished through the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So with that in mind, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and let's read the first five verses. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So reads God's Word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, reveals seven attributes of God in his work of creation so that you will worship him. Seven attributes of God in his work of creation so that you and I will worship him. J.R. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He says, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doing, and the existence of the great God. The study of God and his attributes is indeed the greatest study for the believer. There is no greater study than to study God. And the first attribute which we see in Genesis is that God is Trinity. God is Trinity. We see in verse 1 that God is the grammatical subject of the first sentence. He is the main subject. The subject of the sentence. And He is central to the entire account. This first account opens with Genesis 1 verse 1, and it extends to chapter 2 verse 3. That's the first unit of thought, the the prologue, with perhaps verse 1 being the title. God's existence is assumed. There's no need to prove His existence. There's no definition of God or any mystical speculation about His nature. God's nature is not expressed in some philosophical discussion, but... Through his acts, through his works, and through the demands that he places upon humanity. The term for God here in verse 1, and which is used throughout this chapter 1 account, the creation account, is the word Elohim. Elohim. El is from the root word which means strong or mighty. So God is the strong one. And then law means to dread or to fear so God is the object of dread he is strong and he is the the one to be feared the word Elohim is a plural noun you see Eloah it's the singular form where Elohim is the plural form and Elohim is the same word used to describe the false gods of the nations The surrounding nations were polytheistic. They worshiped a pantheon of Elohim, God, same word. Whereas ancient Israel and Christians today worship Elohim, the one and only true God. So why then is God's name in a plural form? Because God is Trinity. God is Trinity. One God in three persons, Built into the very name of God is the foundation to this essential doctrine. And we also see each person of the Godhead at work within creation. In verse 1, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is described as hovering over God's work of creation. And then in verse 3, we see God the Word then god said god the word is described in creating light we see god the father god the spirit and god the son or or more specifically god the word so who is god the word well john tells us in the beginning of his gospel in john chapter 1 in verses 1 and 3 1 through 3 he says in the beginning was the word drawing on creation in the beginning god john says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god and all things came into being into existence through him apart from him nothing came into being that came that has come into being and then in verse 4 john tells us who this word is in verse 14 in verse 14 of john 1 he says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so all three members of the Trinity were active in creation. The Father was overseeing and decreeing the work. The eternal word was with God and he was involved in every aspect of the created process, speaking it into being. And the Spirit was moving over the waters, which suggests the most intimate kind of hands-on involvement in the process. Not only is Elohim plural, but we also see plural pronouns used in this first chapter in reference to God. Just take a look down at verse 26. Genesis 1 verse 26 says that God said, let us make man in our Image according to our likeness. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is an inter Trinitarian conversation. Here we introduce to the plurality of relationships within the Godhead. And there is communion, there is consultation amongst the members of the Trinity, and they are in perfect agreement. With one another. Exegetically, however, the plural can be used to emphasize, as a point of emphasis. It can either emphasize quality or it can emphasize fullness, majesty, a plural of majesty, or even a plural of intensity. So Elohim is most likely a plural of quantity used to refer to God being infinite, his infinity how he cannot be bound, he cannot be limited, he cannot be contained, or perhaps it's a plural of intensity. Thus, with El meaning power or strength, the, the plural form of Elohim could intensify, emphasize that God is not just power or strength, but he is fullness of power, fullness of strength, absolute strength. Elohim expresses the idea of God's Absolute transcendence, his infinity. He is transcendent with respect to the entire universe. And this leads us to the second attribute of God, which we see in the work of creation. The second attribute of God is that God is transcendent. We saw God is Trinity. Secondly, God is transcendent. Verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the author of the whole world. Everything that exists owes its existence to the divine will. The triune God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. He created time, space, and matter. He created the universe. But God is eternally transcendent over time, space, and matter. We know that God is eternal which means that he transcends time. He neither has a beginning nor an end. God is timeless. Most South Africans love watching the rugby. When we watch a live rugby game, we watch it in a succession of moments. We do not infallibly know each detail of the game before it happens. We wait for the game to unfold before our eyes. But God doesn't watch the rugby like you and I watch the rugby. God sees every event in the game at once. He sees the second half at the same time that we watch the first half. God sees the future as he sees the past because God transcends time. God is also immense, he transcends space. He cannot be confined in one place. He, without measure, fits all things and exceeds all things. God is infinite. He can in no way be limited by the universe this time space world god is omnipresent and god is also spirit which means that he transcends matter he is invisible he doesn't consist of matter he is immaterial he doesn't have a molecular structure like you and i and like everything else that we see god transcends time space and matter God is transcendent but he is also eminent he can dwell eminently in all created beings and this is the third attribute that we see of God God is eminent not imminent his return is imminent but he's eminent with an a in included instead of the I which we see in verse 2 God is eminent he is near verse 2 says And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. God is not only high and exalted above the earth, but He is also near. He's not only infinite, but He's also personal. He is relational. Even though He is eternal, He is also present and eminent in every moment of time. Verse 2 describes the Spirit of God as hovering over the surface of the waters. Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 tells us that like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, same word, God spreads his wings and caught them. He carries them on his pinions. You see, young eagles in their nests, they are unable to feed themselves. They're unable to protect themselves, unable to survive and live, unable to develop and grow, utterly dependent upon their parents who hover over them, providing them with food and with protection and with warmth. And that's that's precisely the imagery that we see here in verse 2. The Spirit of God hovering over this undeveloped, unformed, lifeless mass of matter. In space, covered by water, engulfed in darkness. It's through God the Spirit that God is eminent in his creation. He brings life to it. He beautifies his creation. The Holy Spirit is directly involved in creation, which is the antithesis of deism. Deism states that God created the universe and then stepped away. Much like one winds up a clock and then lets it run. So too, God wound up creation and then stepped it away, stepped away, and so let it let it run its course. But verse two teaches that God is eminent; He is superintending, He is brooding over, hovering over the waters. He's overseeing and orchestrating the whole process of creation personally. He's personally involved. Job twenty-six verse thirteen says that by His spirit the heavens were made beautiful. Job says in chapter 33 verse 4 that the Spirit of God made me and the breath of the Almighty, the breath of the Almighty, gives me life. God the Spirit is intimately involved in every aspect of his created world. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before you've put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me, and the light around me will be as night, even the darkness is not too dark for you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are like to you. God is intimately involved in every detail of our lives. Even when we cannot consciously sense his presence, even when we don't understand what it is that he is doing or why he is doing it, he tells us that he causes all things for our good. All things work together for the good of those who love him. And who have been called according to his purpose. God is intimately involved in every detail of your life. He knows you. God is Trinity. God is transcendent. God is imminent. But being the sovereign creator of all, he is also the highest authority. Which is the fourth attribute of God. God is authority. God is authority. Which we see in verse Three, God is authority. Verse three says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God's authority is demonstrated in the efficacy of his spoken word. God commanded, Let there be light. And there was light. Obedience. The divine word of command brings into existence that which is commanded. Throughout Scripture, the Word of God is characterized both as creative and effective. It is the prophetic word that declares the future, but it also also brings it into being, brings it into existence. Light is the first of the Creator's works. Light is often used metaphorically for life, for salvation, for commandments, and even for the presence of God. Remember, it was light that led Israel. It's also the antithesis, literally, metaphorically, the opposite of darkness. The Hebrew community understood God's creative word was the same authoritative word which brought about the affairs of human history and the nations. Just as the word created the universe, so too the word created the community of Israel. And because Moses spoke the word of God, the law of Moses became the authoritative agent. They were to submit to the law of Moses, the word of God, in order to live their life within community. Yet in contrast to the incompleteness of Moses, now the true light has come, who is the very same word that we see, who's not distinct from God, who is the second person of the Trinity, the one who perfectly explains God. And alluding to Genesis 1 verse 3, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 4 through 6, he says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God who said, "Let let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the word of God. And he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth he is far above all rule or authority or power or dominion he has the name that is above every other name and he commands all people everywhere to repent because god has fixed a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness and all who turn all who repent of their sin and turn to him Trusting in Him, trusting in His perfect life and death and resurrection. Trusting in His great work of salvation, which He accomplished by becoming a man and dwelling among us. And then living a perfect life in obedience to the law of God. And then dying on the cross to pay sin's penalty in full. And rising again from the dead on the third day, securing our salvation. All who trust in Him and His work will be saved. Jesus is the word of life. He is the light of men that shines to dispel the darkness of sin. He exposes sin and he drives it out. So please, come to Jesus, the light of men, so that you might receive life, eternal life. Fifthly, God is good. God is good, which we see in verse 4. God is good good verse 4 says and God saw that the light was good God the great artist is pictured here as admiring his handiwork the account of creation is a hymn to the creator creation itself bears witness to the greatness and the goodness of God God who is judge declares light as good God declares light good because it accomplishes the purpose of dispelling the darkness God is the supreme good for his creatures the supreme good all things strive for he is the fount of all good things the good of every good the one necessary and all sufficient good he is the end of all good Augustine frequently described God as the supreme good. In Him alone is every, everything creatures seek and need. He is the supreme good for all creatures, which is reflected to the extent in which each creature shares in His divine goodness and is able to enjoy Him. It is He toward whom all creatures consciously and unconsciously, willingly and unwillingly, or unwillingly strive. A creature finds no rest except in God alone no good exists in any creature except that which comes from or through God the goodness of God when shown to those in misery is called his mercy that is not treating us as we deserve we deserve his wrath but God shows us mercy in his goodness The goodness of God is also reflected in His grace, which is His unmerited favor, His gift of salvation, which we don't deserve. He gives us, which we receive by faith. But God demonstrated His own love for us in that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8, God is good. Sixthly, God is orderly. God is orderly. He is a God of order. Verse 4 continues. And God separated the light from the darkness. God separated light from darkness. He defined the boundaries of day and night. He also separated the nation of Israel from the other nations. Israel were to distinguish, were to be separate from, they were to distinguish between that which is clean and that which is unclean that which is holy and that which is profane. We, the church, are in this world, but we are not of the world. We are to be set apart. We are holy, separate. And in separating light from darkness, and later on we'll see how he separated the waters which were below from the waters which were above. He separated the sea from the land. God is bringing order because God is a God of order. In verse 2, we read about how the earth was initially created formless and void, and how darkness was over the surface of the deep. It was formless. It was void. The Hebrew phrase is tohu vavohu, tohu vavohu. Tohu refers to something that is unproductive, uninhabitable, like a wilderness. Vavohu is emptiness. The earth was tohu vavohu. The unformed material from which the earth was fashioned at the beginning of its creation was in a state of tohu and vavohu, wilderness, barren, empty, with waters above and solid matter beneath. It was a chaotic mass without order, without life. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, over the face of the deep until God created light. We see this phrase, this tohu vavohu in Jeremiah 4, verse 23 through 27. But the context in Jeremiah is not creation. The context is judgment. Because of Judah's sin, Jeremiah announced that Judah would be uncreated as a consequence of God's judgment. Israel's enemies would leave it desolate, leave it in a state of disorder, and chaos but as Isaiah 45 verse 18 says of creation "Thus says Yahweh who created the heavens he is the God who formed the earth and made it he established it and did not create it a formless place but formed it into formed it to be inhabited I am Yahweh and there is none else but in the beginning God created this blob of matter in space And then over a period of six days, he created order and beauty. Six days of labor and the seventh day set aside for the enjoyment of the completed task. In Scripture, the number seven is considered a number of perfection. A series of seven consecutive days was considered a perfect period, a perfect unit of time, a week. The number seven dominates this first pericope, which starts in verse one and ends in chapter two, verse three. In Genesis one, verse one, the first verse is seven words long in the Hebrew. In Genesis one, verse two, we see 14 words, which is seven times two. In Genesis two, verses one through three, there is 35 words, which is seven times five. And the phrases, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, those phrases occur seven times in this pericope. Each of the three nouns that occur in the first verse, God, heavens, and earth, they repeated in multiples of seven. God occurs 35 times, which is seven times five. Earth will find 21 times, which is seven times three and the heavens another 21 times. The phrase, let there be, occurs seven times. The terms light and day are found seven times in the first paragraph. And there are seven references to light on the fourth day. Water is mentioned seven times in the course of day two and day three. And on the fifth and sixth day, forms of the word "hayah," which means living or beasts, occur seven times. The expression it was good appears seven times with the seventh time being a point of emphasis and it was very good this is no mere coincidence this is divine providence divine order god's perfection and flawless systematic orderliness because god is a god of order the seventh and final attributes of god is that God is owner, God is owner, which we see in verse five, God is owner. Verse five says, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. God shows his superiority over both light and darkness by naming them day and night. The action of naming is an important feature in the creation account because it indicates existence. It indicates being, the the being of the element named. It also shows God's authority over it. In the Old Testament, to name something was to assert sovereignty over it. The one who gives the name has power over the object named. God is the creator. And therefore, he is the owner. He is the possessor. He is the Lord of all things. Apart from him, nothing exists. Giving names also defines their roles. Light and darkness, which he names day and night. God sets the parameters of a 24-hour day. And there was evening and there was morning one day. God is the unrestricted owner of the heavens and the earth. And there is no limits to his power. He does all that he sees fit to do. For from him and through him and to him are all things. The world is the product of his will. It is the revelation of his perfections and finds its goal in his glory. Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us that the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You and I belong to God. We owned by God. He created you and he created me. God is a personal and an intimate God who created man to love and serve and enjoy endless fellowship with him. He created us for relationship so that we would know him, that we would worship him. And since God owns and rules everything, he has absolute authority over that which he owns. He has authority over our lives. We owe him our allegiance, our absolute obedience and worship. We were created to worship God. Godliness means responding to God's revelation that which was revealed about him, these seven perfections, these attributes that we have beheld in the pages of Scripture. Godliness is responding to revelation in trust and obedience, in faith and worship, in prayer and praise, in submission and service. Our life must be lived in light of God's Word. This is true worship. In the words of the Westminster's shorter catechism, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Genesis 1 reveals God as the sovereign creator of everything. God calls us to worship Him. Worship Him for who He is and to worship Him for what He has done in creation. This is the God that we meet in the first verse of Genesis, the first verse of the Bible, And this is the god that we called to worship but how do you and i ensure that these magnificent truths about god that we've seen in his word this morning how do we ensure that they don't remain just head knowledge without it impacting transforming our hearts what should we do meditation we are to meditate upon these truths. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind, to thinking over, dwelling on, applying to oneself, the various things that we know about the works and the ways and the purposes and the promises of God. We are to meditate upon these attributes of God. Meditation, as Packer explains, is an, is an activity of holy thought, Consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. As we meditate upon these attributes of God, we will enjoy sweet communion with them. And it will go from head knowledge to heart transformation. Our hearts will be moved to affection, adoration, awe, worship, submission, faith, trust, obedience service. We will be moved to worship. We will worship like the creatures in heaven are worshiping God this very moment. If you read the book of Revelation, you see multiple occasions of the heavenly beings worshiping God. Just one example, Revelation 4.11, they sing, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. And if this is the response of the creatures in heaven, how are you and I to worship God here on this earth? How should we respond as created beings here on this earth? We too should worship our creator. We too should worship our great God who has created all these things. And the highest form of praise and worship is obedience to Him and to His Word. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, Creator of the heavens and the earth, we come before you with joyful hearts, knowing that you are Lord, you are the Creator of all things. We lift our voices to you in worship and praise. For you have made us, and we are yours. We enter your presence with thanksgiving. We enter your courts with praise. We acknowledge that you are good, and your love endures forever. We give thanks to your faithfulness and your mercy that are new every morning. We know that you are the great shepherd, and we are your sheep. We submit to your care and your guidance, for you lead us besides still waters, and you restore our souls. You protect us from harm, and you comfort us in times of trouble and times of grief. And We declare that you are Lord, and we will gladly serve you. We will worship you, making it our aim to please you in all things. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.